0: Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast. Science, creativity, people, learning more, knowledge. We are trying to get somewhere, and the activity is booming on here. Subscribe if you haven't, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it might be, leave a review. Support the show, let it build. We are on the way to, I think, 500 subscribers on YouTube. Pretty excited. On this one here, our guest today, we have Professor Juliana Schroeder. She's a professor in the Management of Organizations Group at Berkeley Haas. Her research explores how people make social inferences about others. She's a faculty affiliate in the social psychology department, the cognition department and the center for human compatible AI at UC Berkeley. She teaches the negotiations and conflict resolution course at Haas. Juliana, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Armin.
0: I'm glad to have you on here. I like a variety of the topics that you cover. And some of your expertise and research interests are social cognition, interpersonal and intergroup processes, and judgment and decision making. Yep. How did you end up currently where you are at Berkeley? First, before we get into material, yes, how did you end up, what path took you to where you currently are?
1: Um, I actually thought I was going to be a chemist when I was when I was growing up. And then um, when I got to college, I went to the University of Virginia for my undergraduate degree. I took uh, a psychology and economics class in my first year. And that was my first exposure to the social sciences. And I fell in love with the social sciences. I was just, I thought it was so fascinating to think about kind of the life of the mind. And so I decided I was going to be like a psych and econ double major. So I did that. Um, I actually worked in economics consulting for a couple of years. And I thought, um, I want something with more autonomy where I get to um ask questions about anything I find interesting in the world and then study it and run experiments on it to test it out. Um and so I decided, okay, I should go to grad school to do that. Um so I went over to do my PhD with um Nick Epley at the University of Chicago and some other really great social psychologists there like Yale Fishbach and Jane Risen. And um I got really excited by the um the topic of mind perception. How do we think about what's going on in other people's minds? And so I ended up doing my whole PhD on that topic. Um, and then I got the offer from UC Berkeley as soon as I finished the PhD. So I went right to Berkeley. Um, and I've been here, um, for the past, uh, five or six years. I recently got tenure here.
0: That is cool. Nice job on the tenure. That's the the whole path.
1: Yeah. I gave you the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.
0: This is a wonderful thing. How, uh, is, is. Are you liking Berkeley and um, is anything about it suited to you in some way?
1: Yeah, I think I'm a really good fit here which is you know why they they gave me the offer in the first place so um they have a really cool department in the business school it's called the management of organizations group and um, it's got like a, a small group of faculty who are like experts in like um power and judgment decision making and like social cognition and nonverbals and someone also studies like culture so i kind of like fit at the intersection of all of these things like i think of my work as being like social cognition and culture um, like, I, you know, and so I think, uh, I think that my research kind of lines up with all the different faculty's research here. And then I'm also affiliated with a couple other groups at Berkeley beyond just at the business school. Like I'm affiliated with the psychology department and the cognition department, um, and uh, a little bit with the computer science department as I've um, started directing this psychology of technology institute. Um, So it's like, I feel like I fit well into the broader community as well.
0: Like the point that the Venn diagram where the three right, parts it's like, meet and the intersection.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's cool. Not bad. How actually on that point, how does what is one way that social cognition meets culture? Um, How do they interact? Yeah, I I actually
1: think that my research on rituals is a nice um, intersection point there. So I've been studying um, from like an experimental psychology perspective, um, ritual and why do rituals emerge and what is a ritual as as, that's actually been debated across the sociological and anthropological sciences for a long time. And then the experimental part comes in, in terms of thinking about, can we manipulate um, ritual in like laboratory settings or at least field settings, and then look up the actual, um, causal consequences of ritual. So we've been doing that as well. And I'm happy to talk about some of that research if, if you're interested.
0: Actually kind of, it made me think of, um, when you look at rituals, are you looking at far in the past? Because that's what we think of sometimes of historical rituals or are we looking at any items from the current time? Which one are you looking at more?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a great question because um, so many people when they think about ritual and a lot of the research that's been done in the past has been at this level too, they think about institutional rituals. Like they think about um, religion, they think about You know all the all the rituals in catholicism and judaism and um they think about those types of like huge group rituals which are so important and meaningful in our society but we think of ritual on kind of a more idiosyncratic um almost more of a lower like micro level which is that small groups even pairs of people or even individuals can create their own types of rituals Um, and we actually take the stance that any activity can be ritualized so um, imagine just like think about a happy hour that maybe you and your work colleagues engage in and um, so maybe it just kind of happens randomly every once in a while and some people join and maybe it's at a different place every time that would be like a not very ritualized activity Um, but you could ritualize it by adding in these kind of um, specific physical features which are um tend to be like rigidity sequence formality so if you were to say okay this happy hour now it's going to be every single friday at 5 p.m it's going to involve these people it's always going to be at the same place and we're going to do it in this like particular sequence when we get there we're going to do this thing maybe we all go around and share something interesting that happened to us during the week and um and, and and you can and so those are the physical features you can add those in and then also it would have these psychological features um, which are you know being characterized by some meaningfulness or some symbolism so we might add in something like we each get a drink that um, represents something that happened to us during the week or I mean that's a weird example but we'd add some symbolic element into the happy hour um, and then now what we've done is successfully ritualized it so um, and then what we find in our research is that if you can ritualize an activity it has has some um, value for the group. It brings the group like closer together because now they've got kind of this inside track. They all kind of, um, think of it like an inside joke. It's like an inside activity that we all kind of get. And from the outside, it looks kind of weird, but from the inside, like we get it. And that makes us feel like more cohesive um, and that can make employees actually more um, committed to their organizations and to their groups.
0: It increases cohesion Based on these items that you're bringing up. Yeah. Uh, We're doing this on a regular basis. We have these things that we do. Yeah, we Everybody's actually, with them.
1: like recently, so I have a, a PhD student, Daniel Stein, who um, for his dissertation, one of the things he did was he was um, collecting some data on the pandemic. And so we ran this like longitudinal survey um, over the course of the last couple of years. Um, and we collected data like every six months and we were looking at employees and their commitment to their organizations. And what we found, of course, is that commitment like declines over the course of the pandemic in general, even if even it, this is even just um, including the employees that are, were continually to stay at their organizations, they didn't leave their organizations or anything. They weren't fired, so they're they're there. They're full-time employees, but still their commitment is declining. But one thing that was kind of interesting about the data is that the employees that were able to kind of um, uh, reconstitute um, their rituals so you know a lot of these different employees had these in-person rituals that got lost um, during the pandemic but some of them were able to kind of create these virtual rituals that they could keep engaging in that served as like a buffer for the loss of commitment so if they were able to kind of engage in these more virtual rituals then that buffered them and those um, those employees felt like more cohesive with their groups which was a mediator for the buffering effect that we found
0: That makes sense. My mind is always thinking of text. So the word ritual, actually, the letters of it all fit in the word virtual. So maybe there was a link there. That's kind (laughs) of cool. Well, we've been trying uh, to explore like, yeah,
1: we've been trying to explore what virtual rituals really look like, because it's interesting that like sometimes, and so this is a little bit exploratory because this is really new work, but sometimes um, when rituals are made into the, when they're brought into the virtual world, they lose like some of the physical features. Like if you imagine like, you know, a graduation ceremony that now happens virtually, like maybe certain things get left out. Like you don't wear those like silly hats and the robes anymore. Cause like, why would you do that? You're just at home. But we think like, the physical things are really important. Like those have a really important um, meaning for rituals. And so it's a little bit unfortunate that some of them seem to get lost. I and mean, so we're trying to like investigate, you know, what happens when those features get lost? You know, Is there a way to like put them into the virtual space um, to make those rituals more powerful, that kind of thing.
0: So now I would want to focus on a few of your papers that you have. I have looked at quite a few and they're in the categories of things that I uh, value I have experienced uh, I'm I have been a very social person for a long time I used to tell people I've talked to more people in Los Angeles than any other person that Hi. exists and I, I think it's probably still the case and so uh, your papers connect with things that I had to figure out over time or I was able to notice so it's nice to have the experience match the uh, analysis that's a great feature you have one paper called, keep talking, which is something I'm currently doing right now. That's funny. But, uh, as far as when people are in conversation with a new acquaintance, uh, they, they expect their enjoyment to decline as their conversations continued, but actually it was stable or they, uh, increased in enjoyment when they were talking. There's a mismatch between what people will think will come out from conversing with the new acquaintance versus what actually will occur um why is that there uh what have you figured out or noticed in this category and are we built wrong as people
1: (laughs) i wouldn't say that we're built wrong as people per se um like a lot of our research these days is focused on a conversation because conversation is you know super fascinating. It's the bread and butter of all social interaction and social relationships. Um, and yet it's kind of challenging in a couple of interesting ways. Um, so there are kind of two key problems that we look at in conversations. Uh, one is called like the coordination problem, which is that because there are two people or at least two people in any conversation, um, you have to coordinate with the other person in terms. of their preferences. And so you can think about every stage of the conversation, like the start of the conversation, you know, does, you know, if you don't know the other person, do they even want to talk to you at all? You know, or if they do want to talk to you, you know, how do they want to start the conversation or who starts the conversation? And then the duration of the conversation, you know, how long should it last? And like, how often should I switch topics during the conversation? And should I spend more of it listening or should I spend more of it speaking? Right. And then there's the end of the conversation. Like when does the conversation end and how do I end it? And what does the other person want, and throughout this whole thing, it's the re- the coordination problem is that you know you have to read the other person and try try to figure out what they want, and because of all these different social norms like politeness, um, people often aren't really fully honest about what they want. You know, so maybe I'm ready to be like done with the conversation right now, but I'm not gonna like. You know say that to you because i'm trying to be polite um and so people you know they're trying to read each other and they're making all these mistakes and these errors because people have some incentives not to share their true feelings and their true preferences in the conversation um, so that's a quotation problem and then the second problem that we look at is like what we call the translation problem um which is that i as a communicator have to take what's in my mind, which starts as maybe a thought or even just like an image. It's, It's been called mental ease. It's like the language of what it is in my mind. And then I have to translate that into verbal language, you know, maybe it's written or maybe it's spoken in a way that I think you as the audience member will understand. Right. So I translate it and I have to articulate it and I might do a, a good job of that in terms of it matches my mental content or I might do a not so good a job of that in the sense that my verbalization might not perfectly match what's really in my mind. Um, And then you as the receiver, you have to be able to, you know, hear that and comprehend it and then you interpret it yourself. And what we want to occur by the end is that my mental image perfectly matches your mental image, right? So we've got like a one to one match. But, you know, there's a million things that can happen along the process of translation (laughs) that can, you know, prevent that from from occurring. Um, And so I have like a whole series of papers that look at kind of all these different aspects of the problem. And the one that you mentioned, um, Keep Talking, Mike Cardis is the first author of that paper. Um, That one really focuses on people's beliefs about how um, their enjoyment will occur over the course of a conversation. Um, And what we find is that people think that their enjoyment will decline as a conversation continues, kind of like a normal hedonic adaptation effect. Um, Hedonic adaptation being like whenever you like hear a stimulus or experience a stimulus, like you're listening to music or you're eating chocolate, like the 50th time that you do it it's not quite as enjoyable as like the first time (laughs) okay so your favorite song like the 50th time it's not as fun and enjoyable so people think that conversations are kind of like that like they follow the same pattern that like by the time i've had like the fifth conversation or even within the same conversation by like the 50th minute compared to the first minute it's going to be like less enjoyable Um, But actually what we find out is like that's not the case at all for conversation, the reason being that it's constantly changing, right? And and in fact, if you think about the way like a relationship develops, it becomes like better and more intimate over time. Like if anything, the beginning of our conversation might be like less interesting and more superficial than the end when we've gotten like into like the juicy details and we can, you know, really get, get down into it. Um, And so I think what we find in that research is that like people have trouble simulating conversations because it can branch in like an almost infinite number of ways, especially when they don't know the other person, right? Because I just don't, I can't really predict where the conversation will go because I don't know, Armin, where you're going to take it. Um, And so because of that, they um, tend to like miss simulate and they just tend to think about the beginning of it and they think their enjoyment will decline. And in fact, what we find is enjoyment always stays stable or goes up even um, over time. Um, And so what that leads people to do is it leads them to tend to end conversations too early. And so we have this like fun experiment in the paper where um, we actually have a condition where we make uh, pairs of strangers talk for 30 minutes Um, And so that's like the forced choice, like they have to talk for the full 30 minutes. Or we have another condition where you're matched up with a pair and you can talk with them for just five minutes and then after that you can choose how much longer you wanna talk. So do you wanna talk for like the full 30 minutes with them or do you wanna take a break and do something else? Um, And something else would be like basically being on your own, sitting in solitude in front of a computer screen. Right, and what we find is that on average, people tend to end the conversations before the 30 minutes. They tend to pick like around 15 minutes to have the conversation on average. Um, but what happens is that afterwards, they're just on the computer and they get bored, and they're not as happy as if they had for- been in the conversation for the full 30 minutes. And so what we find is like when we actually force them to talk for 30 minutes, people report afterwards being happier and having more enjoyment than if they had their own free choice. In which case, they make the wrong decision and end the Conversation too early for their own enjoyment.
0: That is a funny one, and I have noticed that that effect occurs. That's the thing that's related to sometimes you'll spend time with someone, and but recently I spent a lot of hours with one person, and by the time we're we're in the let's say third hour or such, or time flying. Okay, because the connection great, and so. Uh-huh. You can't get there in the first five, 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but that later time, like an hour was gone in a minute. uh, But that's a later point. The beginning is not like that. You're warming up for that. That's obviously an extended form of it. But the one you're describing, I think, yes, that always is the case that the coolest conversations I had, you had to roll into it. But the average individual, when you go into one, they do have that like, okay, and then, but it's sort of, there's like, is there like a mindset of? Uh, things will, this will be like a customary thing and okay. And it's like a check off the box kind of deal. There's something, is it like a personality related item or not at all?
1: Um, we didn't find that it interacted that meaningfully with personality other than, um, extroversion, which does matter here. Um, more extroverted people have more accurate predictions about how the conversation trajectory will go compared to more introverted people, which we've actually found in a couple different contexts that even introverts, you know, end up having these good experiences in the conversations, even though they don't expect to as much. Um, and, um. I I guess, you know, what I think that research really points to is the idea that um, people may have a tendency to engage in shallower conversations or be more likely to kind of switch from person to person or just cut the conversation short in general because they're sort of failing to recognize how enjoyable it'll be over time. Um, and one of the key mechanisms that we found that creates that is people tend to think that they're gonna run out of things to say, right? So I told you about them not being able to simulate the full conversation, but you know more proximally it's like they think that the conversation will kind of run dry, right? It's like, well, after we've like said hi to each other and how are you? And like talked about the weather for a few minutes, I guess this will just end, right? Um, that we won't be able to continue. But in fact, like, yeah, people are pretty good at maintaining conversation. And um, because, you know, there's there's so much depth to, to uncover in any particular person, right? Like the mind can go really deep. Um, I think things can just kind of keep going and people don't really don't recognize that enough
0: have an analog of this is kind of like when you work on things, you can work on a thing and then switch a thing and switch a thing and you get a lot of little things, but, um, it's partially the person. And then there's like deep work where you spend like four hours on something. And now those four hours, you might remember them five months later, eight months later, because it was so impactful. You can't do that with something you did eight minutes in. And if the individual is thinking it's going to be one of those eight minute little bits, well, um, there's not much to take away from it it's not even inspiring to go into it in the first place mm-hmm. so that might be also why it's related to the extroverts um understanding the worth of it because maybe they've done it before and they have examples of like oh this was a great opportunity from scratch i can do it again it's like doubt erasing yeah, doubt
1: that, that analogy between deep work and having intimacy and conversation like getting kind of engaged in the flow of like interacting with someone else that's that's kind of nice i like that um and in a way you know you do have to put in like a little bit of like work to to form a relationship to get to know someone over time um but i I think that people have like a lot of fears about every aspect of the social interaction um the start of it how long it'll continue and so on that are somewhat misplaced and so if they could kind of put those aside um then they would have they would reap a lot more benefit um, from kind of forming deeper relationships, and like something I've been turning over in my mind a little bit is you know people's attention spans just getting shorter um, over time, uh, especially with like the role of technology and like the way that we're consuming kind of social interaction like via social media these days. And so you know the the idea of like putting in just like 30 minutes to like talk one on one with someone and get to know them, it sort of like goes against the way people live their lives these days, <laughs> which is. A little bit concerning to think about, honestly, <laughs> um, one, like another line of work that I've been doing is, is thinking about how text-based interactions can be kind of dehumanizing because they cut out um, a lot of like the key like visual and verbal information that you need to really get to know someone deeply. Um, and so that kind of also gets back to the concerns of social media and how a lot of our engagement is happening over text, especially with people we disagree with, um, which I've done some work on as well.
0: This is funny. And a topic that I think about quite a bit. I think about it in terms of bandwidth with the uh, in-person being the highest then video, then audio, then text and the lowest bandwidth. One book said it was a one, like a, when you click like on something, that's the lowest bandwidth interaction possible. Just <laughs> one bit of information. And we lose. You don't remember those moments is my selling point for the other end, because all those little items never are remembered a month later, but those if you did put 30 minutes in on a meaningful interaction like you're talking about you'll still remember it. some people meditate for like four hours like a year later they're like i meditated one time for four hours they did nothing but that four hours was a meaningful four hours of something and then they it's like a part of the story
1: yeah the, i guess i yeah. would modify that a little bit um based on the research we've done on the communication medium because one thing that I found interesting and a little bit surprising is that um, the role of the visual information when you're talking to another person like one on one, visual information doesn't seem to matter that much. So what we find is that like as long as you have the audio information, like the, the person's voice and you're kind of talking to them voice to voice. Um then that's that's like humanizing, that's more intimate. Um, that gives you a lot more insight into the person's mind. Um, and then the visual information on top of that doesn't make that much of a difference. So I don't know what we find in our research is that even just like a phone conversation is you know, approximately as good on average as like an in-person or a video based conversation.
0: You just reminded me of that sometimes a phone conversation, that's funny, you can go from a video and then if you actually same person and it's a phone conversation, you feel like you're right there with them more than you were in video. Oddly enough, I forgot about that.
1: Yeah. And, that's um, funny. there's like, there's some work that actually says, suggests that visual information like can be distracting a little bit. So in some ways you like concentrate more and focus more on the other person when it's auditory only.
0: And that's why also, uh, I think so many people are focused on maintaining their audio space or, um, in public or they listen to certain videos that have like a soothing voice or something motivating, but it's just in their ear and they're not watching anything uh-huh. a, a good chunk of the day at this point.
1: Yeah. And um, hmm. the, the problem of course though, is that there's some of my research and um, Amit Kumar has a paper on this has found that people will prefer to be in text-based interactions quite a bit because it feels easier, it's more efficient, it's asynchronous, Um, and so there are lots of great reasons for people to prefer it, but the problem is that, you know, they prefer it even when it would be better on the variables that they're trying to maximize to be having a phone conversation or, you know, an in-person or a video chat conversation. So what we find is that, you know, if you're trying to connect with someone and you're trying to really um, deeply understand, you know, their viewpoint, like if they disagree with you, or if you're trying to get things done, like if you're trying to be productive, then what you really want is like the synchronous interaction that involves the voice. Um, but in all those contexts, people will often prefer to use, um, text instead.
0: That's funny. Yeah. That's slightly easier, but not as connected,
1: right? It feels easier, but it's not as connective. And it's also because it's asynchronous. You're not going to be able to get things done as efficiently. Um, so if you really want to like make things happen, you got to pick up the phone and start, you know, talking to someone.
0: My fellow people pick up the phone and start talking to someone. Right. One tidbit there. <laughs> <laughs> I should throw in little tidbits. You know, sometimes books have like a bunch of pages and then they'll have like takeaway or something you should do. That's one takeaway or something you should do. Exactly. That's a call. That's not bad. Now, moving to an alternate paper of yours, you have one called Hello, Stranger, which was a theme of like seven years of my existence or more. I'm just giving a rough number, but connecting with people you didn't know beforehand and uh, the thoughts that we have when we do it, it makes people happier when they do it. This is from the paper description. strangers in close proximity often ignore each other and um so there's expectations that come into play beforehand and uh, people predict that trying to have a conversation would be less pleasant than actually having one because they anticipated that others would be uninterested in talking there's a little bit of this doubt there's a common kind of a theme of like doubt beforehand uh, before trying what can we speak to about uh hello stranger and reaching out to someone unknown and avoiding conversation when it would be pleasant.
1: Yeah, this was on um, one of like the first papers with the first big paper that I wrote when I did my PhD and, um, what we thought was interesting the idea here was that you know there's so much work that shows that social connection is a really important part of the human experience that humans are really built to be social and that that's what you know that's how we get our happiness and that's part of what makes us physically healthy is to have these good social connections and so you know there's all that work that suggests that but then there do seem to be certain cases when people prefer not to connect socially with others and one that we found really interesting was like in when people are surrounded by strangers like on public transportation or in waiting rooms or you know in the line for the checkout and so those are contacts where you know people might be like actually bored they don't have anything else good to do and yet they choose like not to engage with others so this phenomenon of like not talking to strangers you know why why does that occur why don't people engage more with others and um we thought you know maybe people don't really understand that talking to a stranger could actually be pleasant for them and so we ran all these field experiments on like buses and in taxis and um, trains. And we've done it on, um, on uh, the BART stations in California. And what we wanted to do was like, we randomly assigned people to like talk to a stranger in those contexts, or just be in solitude or just do what they would normally do, which is typically being in solitude. And what we find in those like field experiments is that the people that were that had to talk to the stranger for the study reported that it made them feel happier than the ones who were in solitude or just did whatever they wanted, which was being in solitude. Um, and what was interesting is that people predict the opposite. So they predict that talking to a stranger will make them the least happy and they'll have the least enjoyable experience and also like the least productive experience and things like that. And so they're actually totally wrong. They like get the, they get the pattern completely wrong of what the, of what actually happens. Um, and so that was interesting. And the paper that you just cited was a conceptual replication of some of that earlier work that we did in conjunction with the BBC in London, where we looked at um, train commuters in the London area. Um, and we, again, like randomly assigned them to talk to a stranger on the train or to just sit in solitude. And we replicate all the results. So we found that even you know even in that context, um, the people that talked to a stranger had more pleasant experiences than the ones that were in solitude. Um, But what was interesting about that paper is that people didn't mispredict it. They actually predicted that talking to a stranger would be more pleasant. So then we wondered, well, why aren't they engaging in that behavior more often then? Um, And so what we found was that um, the, the main barrier is that people are concerned about the start of the conversation. So they think like conditional upon having a conversation, it'll be fun and interesting and like they'll get to know someone, but that nobody will want to talk to them basically. So that a lot of people will reject them. And I think part of that comes going back to the technology conversation we're having, part of that comes from like, people are, you know, on their phones with their headphones on. And so it looks like nobody really wants to talk. And we've actually found in some different data that, for example, everyone reports that they're like somewhat willing to talk like on a scale from like, you know, one to 10, they put themselves out of five, but they think everyone else is like not willing to talk. They think everyone else is at like a two or a three. Um, and so everybody thinks everyone else is like less interested in talking than they are. And people report that they think like more than 50% of other people would say no. And like, wouldn't want to talk to them. Like they wouldn't be willing to talk to them, um, which seems to be totally wrong. um, because people really like fail to take into account like the social norms. So if someone walks up to you, Armin, and says hi in like a friendly way, um, and smiles at you, like it's very hard not to say hi back, even if it's just a short conversation. Um, so people kind of don't think about like that other people will be friendly and say hi back to them, which of course everybody does.
0: <laughs> I like your example, because in those rare cases that, uh, cause I was like overly from my end reaching out to others, but if sometimes people had reached out to me, I would just jump in like, Hey, so all kinds of stuff I'm full. Like I'm just waiting for these kind of things <laughs> and the average person still would be in some, in some regard. Yeah,
1: everyone's like like somewhat willing to kind of put themselves at the middle of the scale, but everybody thinks everyone else is less interested. It's actually what we call like a form of a pluralistic ignorance, which is that people um, are, are observing from others behavior that others are not talking. And then they assume that means something about other people's attitudes. So they assume that means that other people don't want to talk but it doesn't necessarily mean people don't want to talk. What it might mean is like the norms, like the, the, the norms are that you kind of stay to yourself and stay quiet, you know? And so that might be a reason why people aren't talking or maybe they're not talking because they're, you know, looking at something on their phone, right? But that doesn't mean that they don't want to talk necessarily. So it's kind of an inadvertent assumption about attitudes from behavior.
0: I like that description. One thing that just came to my mind is that I think about it, um, this way that some of my socializing or a good chunk of it was in a, even though it wasn't that long ago, uh, I would call it a different moment than this current moment. If we go back five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years ago, before a lot of the social uh, proliferation of, uh, kind of comparison and hefty numbers and all this. And so that combined with my sort of natural nature gave me a little bit of experience that I don't think you can. Uh, replicated easily today. Uh And then every year, the last three, four years, I've been thinking to myself, it almost feels like a good chunk of people have been left out of like, it would be more difficult to do the same thing that they could have done eight years ago socially. And now even with more information, like the feeling is against them. The doubt is heavier on them. The comparison is more on them. And so how does one counter that? Does anything come to mind that can counter Uh, Even if the facts are there for them, if the feeling is like heavier than the facts for them to try things or reach out, is there any counter forces that can be there?
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting. Like, that's a question we've been tackling a bit, which is sort of about learning. So. You know, imagine that you you read this paper and you think, oh, so people actually are willing to talk to me or you have one experience like you talk to someone and they and you have a pleasant experience like they talk back to you. You know, does that mean that you're going to update and that the next time you have a conversation that you'll feel less concerned? And I don't really know the answer to that. In fact, in some of our experiments, what we've done is we've asked at the end of the day, after the after, after we had people engage in a conversation, you know, at the end of the day, now do you think you're going to talk to someone again? Are you going to do it another time? And in one study, we found that it didn't, change people's likelihood of doing that. Even, even if they had a successful conversation, they didn't report being any more likely to try to talk again. Um, perhaps because they were thinking, oh, maybe this was a unique experience and they're not thinking that it would generalize to other experiences. And then in another context, this was actually the London studies people did report like, yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised and I am going to try to talk again. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how people learn from it, and I do have that sense, Armin, I share your intuition, that um, it's kind of hard, even when you kind of rationally know, like, okay, maybe people are willing to talk, it's kind of hard to overcome kind of this intuitive fear that, like, this person is going to reject me. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know if, like, it's enough just to, to have a rational knowledge to kind of overcome your hesitance and be willing to talk to people. I don't know if that's enough. I think more research needs to be done on that
0: that's cool the rational sometimes yeah the rational it might not be uh enough to tip the scales for some many right individuals.
1: right and actually um like Jillian Sandstrom and Liz Dunn, those are some other researchers who have been studying this for a while. And one of the things that they're trying to do is play around with like different interventions to get people to feel more comfortable talking with each other. Um, So they have like um, one study where they looked at, you know, people wearing wristbands, like a green wristband versus a red wristband. And the green wristband means like I'm open to talking. You know, the red wristband means I'm not as open to talking. So, you know, maybe that would be a bit of an intervention. So if you see people with green wristbands, now you feel really comfortable starting the conversation conversation. Um, but then again, maybe that would backfire because if people predict that it'll be not as fun as they, as it actually will, then maybe people will tend to choose the red wristband, even though they should be choosing the green wristband. Um, so I think the verdict is still out based on, on some of what she's told me about that research.
0: What you're mentioning there automatically, my mind goes to the fact that some, let's say for a friend of mine, uh, music festivals, or a walking green wristband, once they get into the mesh with everybody and the music is going on in some form, it's as close as it would be to that where they're like, okay, all right. And I think each, there are different groups I'm now thinking of that they have a green wristband. It's not a green wristband, but it's a item. And when those things are in place, suddenly they can go back to, okay, I'm I'm good to go versus how I am 94% of the time.
1: Uh huh yeah or like you can even think about like natural conversation starters like icebreakers that might happen like if if you're both watching the same music festival on stage like it's an easy conversation starter like hey did you just see that or like I love this song you know and so that's those are kind of nice ways to think about being able to overcome that barrier people feel about the start of the conversation and get it going
0: it's like that the theme of friction or like one of those activation energy curves and we're l- reducing the a sub E or E sub A, one of those, A sub E, I think, uh-huh. uh, activation energy. Uh-huh. And now, boom, we're ready to go. We don't have this big hump to go over. Right. That's kind of cool. That's funny. Friction is a big deal. I always try to cut out friction in most things in my existence so that I always see it as like the big canceller. Any friction of activity, that's why momentum is a big deal to me. Socialization, if I'm doing it all the time, I never have to uh break that barrier or there's a quote this one actress says she's like he gets he stays ready so he doesn't have to get ready it's kind of like always being in that state or keeping at that state so you don't have to start from scratch again
1: yeah i I guess i never thought of it this way but maybe a lot of my research focuses on like what are points of like social friction or interpersonal friction and then how can we kind of overcome those points
0: that's a cool one And speaking of which, uh, about your research, just letting you know, I think it's great. And you have a paper called Just Letting You Know. What a segue. I mean, that was a smooth one right there. (laughs) There's one called Just Letting You Know, Underestimating Others' Desire for Constructive Feedback. Uh, I like this one because feedback is a big deal to me. Whenever I've gotten it, I use it. And because I can't, 10, 15 years ago, I couldn't pick up on all kinds of little details. I had to reverse engineer most things one by one until I got smoother. So feedback was like the gold to me. And then when I saw this, it made me think like, oh, there are there is that like, oh, what will they be able to help me or do we, do I want their feedback? In this one you had mentioned, people sometimes avoid giving feedback to others, even when it would help fix others' problems. And overall people consistently underestimate others' desire for feedback with potentially negative consequences for feedback receivers, outcomes. Um What can we learn in this space of just letting someone know?
1: Yeah, so we started with this um, puzzle, this empirical puzzle of um, the fact that it seems like there's a lot of findings that show that people really appreciate constructive feedback. um, Like particularly like in workplace settings, like they appreciate when their manager gives them them feedback, um, but people feel like they don't get enough of it right and people are afraid to give it oftentimes so there's this sort of gap between people's willingness to give feedback and how much people seem to want feedback Um, and so we were wondering you know why that is it's like why aren't people giving sort of enough feedback and what we find in that paper I mean there are lots of reasons but one of the reasons that we point to in that particular paper is that people think that their feedback won't be very appreciated and won't be that valuable um, to the other person, um, when in fact, the other person really wants it and is really valuable. And we looked at contexts where I would say it's like actually a conservative test, because we looked at feedback that basically like fixes a person's problem. So, you know, if you have like spinach in your teeth, and you're about to walk into a big meeting, like, wouldn't you want to know, like, you know, assuming that you can fix it, right? Like you have time to like go to the bathroom and fix it, right? Or if you are mispronouncing the client's name, right? And like, you're about to go talk to the client, and I'm like, hey, by the way, like, this is, the way you say their name like that's really useful feedback right like it's so valuable like it could fix the problem and and the thing is that any like from the receiver perspective like the receivers really want to know that like the potential receivers um but then if you put so this is like an amazingly big you know, effect that if you put a person into the perspective of the receiver, like imagine that you're the one with the spinach in your teeth. They're like, yes, I really want that feedback. But then if you instead put them into the perspective of the potential giver and say like, imagine you see someone with spinach in their teeth, how much do you think they want to know? Then people are like, oh, I don't know. Maybe they don't want to know. Like maybe they don't want that feedback. <laughs> And they're they're like, immediately they completely change. And once you like, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a fix. Basically that's an intervention that you can do, which is like to tell people to take the perspective of the potential receiver. Like, imagine that you're the one who has the spinach and teeth, then they like recognize like, oh yes. Okay. I would want to know that. and the it seems like the primary reason they don't like recognize the the amount that people desire feedback is because they think that it might not be like that beneficial to them. Like they're not thinking about the all the benefits that it might have to the person. They're instead thinking about the potential costs. Like they're thinking oh, you know, maybe they'll feel embarrassed or maybe um, they're not gonna like me, shoot the messenger idea, right? Like if I'm the feedback giver, like now they they dislike me. And so the giver has to kind of like face those potential costs so that the receiver can access all the benefits that they're gonna get. Um, And that's hard for people to do. So it's like givers aren't thinking enough about those potential benefits.
0: This is true. Yeah. There is a, Weight to it on your end. Also, the uh, basketball player Kobe Bryant mentioned that before he was gone, that he said, "I'm the kind of person that if you have some spinach in your teeth, I'll tell you you have spinach in your teeth because the discomfort of the moment." He said, "Like it, it, it's outweighed by the fact that I'm, you know, getting the right information to you. I don't care about that." Right, I don't care, but I'll bypass that. Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: Fact. That's right. Like, so it's like, okay, there's like a little cost in the moment, right, because it's a little embarrassing or something. But then it's worth it, you know, for the for the other person at least to get that. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what we found, like over and over again, that in all these different contexts, like even we have experiments where we had relationship partners come into the lab, and they, you know, one person is assigned to be the giver, the feedback giver, and the other person is assigned to be the receiver, and the feedback giver has to come up with like what's an important piece of like constructive feedback that you could give to your partner. And so, some of these people have been, you know, married for years. It's like, what are you going to give to your partner? And people are telling them these things, like, you know. Um, I would really appreciate it if, like, when we talk, like, you don't text, you know, because sometimes I feel like I'm not being heard. It's like this kind of useful feedback that will help the relationship and things. But the givers, like, were really didn't want to. They didn't want to give the feedback. Like, they were like, "Oh, I don't know. Like, it's going to harm the relationship." And then it turns out, like, the receivers were like, they really value it and they appreciate it. And they said, "Oh, wow, I didn't know that you." you felt that way when I texted, when you talk, like I didn't, I didn't ever know about that. And then they report afterwards that they feel like the release that feedback brought them closer. So the relationship actually got better. Um, so I thought that was like a nice, a nice experiment.
0: A lot of things are linking here and I see the value of every time you do make that move, not imposing, but it's like you're exerting your presence, on the world or others, I think it's great because you're taking into account your reality. I've always said this uh, to people. I know that people from the past who no longer exist and people in the future who haven't been born, they can't move their arms, but I can move my arms for this period of time. I can do other things. We have moments to do things. So to pass that up is like—it's something odd about it because person from a thousand years ago doesn't take a risk. I can also not take a risk. It's not really setting me apart in any way for being alive. in a a way and then it also relates to something you are reviewing which is uh empathy uh because these all kind of link mind perception and empathy and understanding others viewpoint is a really important link i wanted to go into what you are looking at currently in relation to empathy or uh what people can do to apply empathy into their existence
1: ah um Yeah, that's interesting that you should say that. Like we just came out with a paper that looks at people's willingness to help others. Um, And one of the findings there is that people for themselves, they really focus on like their psychological needs as well as their physical needs. Like they think about the fact that they care about meaning and purpose in life and they need autonomy. But when they're thinking about helping others, they don't think about those um, more psychological aspects. They think more about the physical things. And so when you think about, like, unhoused people um, or, or people that, um, you know, former criminals, like, trying to, to reintegrate into society and stuff, like, one of the biggest things that people tend to do to help is, like, they want to, like, give them, like, cans of food and, like, you know, for homeless people be, like, shelter and things like that, which... You know it's great like those are physical needs that people have but they fail to think enough about all the psychological needs like social needs and things like that and in fact you know what we found in some of our studies is that people really want um things that give them autonomy like cash equivalents you know like gift cards or, or just cash because they can spend you know they can save that money they can put it towards education they you know there's so much more flexibility in terms of what they can do with that um and you know although they still appreciate like cans of food that's not really the number one thing that they want nobody ever says that's like the number one thing that they want right and yet like that's usually the thing that they're getting they're usually not getting the cash Um, and so, you know, there's, there's basically two reasons. So one is the one I talked about, which is that people don't think enough about other psychological needs. Um, and so in that sense, they're not really kind of having empathy for their full situation. Um, and then the other thing is that people tend to be paternalistic, especially to those that, you know, they don't know as well or who they think have like weaker mental capacities, And so we actually find in one paper that like your beliefs about a recipient's like mental capacity, so how much like agency and self-control they have, that really closely tracks with your willingness to give them like agentic aid, like cash. Um, And so if you tend to think of them as like not really having great self-control, then it's like of course I'm not going to give them cash. Like I'd rather give them the can of food, right? Um, And so you know that's that's kind of interesting. It relates tangentially to the the idea of empathy um, sort of shows a context in which people don't have perfect empathy, I, I think.
0: It's like a case of somewhat missing the concept, the person's like, I just have more cans. I'm getting all these cans of things. Right. All this food. Exactly.
1: Yeah. People like cans of beans. It's like, they get a lot. <laughs> and
0: then the person maybe giving could think more of like, you know, checking in. That's one of the great connectors for empathy. It's like, could you let me know more of what you're looking for? Then you just, you meet them where they are versus like, I'll just throw out this and hopefully they were at the same uh, level meeting point. Right. Linkage. I will say this though. I would like to, that will be saved for a future moment in time. In the current moment, I am uh, glad to have covered these specific papers and the topics in yeah
1: the, I've, I've got to run too but this was a good conversation
0: in the future may be back on the show but in the current one professor juliana schroeder <laughs> i would like to thank you for having joined and given us all quite a bit of knowledge in a category that means a lot to myself thank also.
1: you it was really fun to be on
0: very cool and we are out
1: <laughs> okay.